you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to me, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at some verses today that are very familiar to a lot of Christians. But these are verses that really help us to understand the joy of a Christ-like life. As we work through this series of messages together, we're in week five. Paul is writing to these Roman Christians who are living in a world a lot like our own. They were facing the same kind of hardships, the same kind of disappointments, the same kind of struggles. And Paul writes to encourage them, God's using all these things to accomplish something in you and through you that's bigger than you can see. And this is the way he put it in Romans 8. And listen to the words of certainty here. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know, and we know, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray for a moment. Father, this is your word, and we need to hear you speak. You have something you want to say to me, to all of us. You're offering us the abundant life. It's offered to all who love you, who are called according to your purpose. Today, God, I pray you'll encourage us because there's not one of us in the room who isn't going through some kind of a struggle, some kind of a trial, and it helps us to know that the God we love and who loves us is working this for a good purpose. Help us to see that today. That in accepting this gift of abundant life, we may have the joy of a Christ-like life. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid, I had heroes, like a lot of kids do. When I was in elementary school, one of my first heroes was a guy named Carl Yastrzemski. Anybody ever heard of him? Yeah, well, we grew up in New England, so we were a big Red Sox fan. Carl Yastrzemski was the star left fielder for the Boston Red Sox. And uh, I wanted to be like him. He threw right, so I threw right. He batted left, I batted left. He played left field, I want to play left field. He wore number eight, I wore number eight. He went on to be a triple crown Hall of Famer, and that's where it ended. (laughs) But I practiced hard, I played hard, because I wanted so much to be like Carl Yastrzemski. And people said I even became a pretty good ball player. But I came to realize I'd never be like him. When I turned 12, my hero was a guy by the name of Wes Balasuknia. He was the star guard for our University of Connecticut basketball team from 64 to 67. They used to call him the Poughkeepsie Popper. He was a guy that would learn and master the outside shot. He would bomb it from all over. I'd be listening to my little radio, and I'd hear, Balasuknia from the corner, swish. Balasuknia from the key, swish. Man, I'd get so inspired, I wanted to be just like him. So I'd go out in my yard, I'd take a peach basket, I'd nail it to a tree, knock the bottom out of it, and I'd get a ball, and I'd, from all over the yard, man, I'm shooting like Wes Balasuknia. And people said, man, you're going to be a pretty good basketball player. But I realized I'm never going to be like him. 
And then at age 25, I became a Christian. And I met Jesus. And I fell in love with him. And the more I learned about him, the more I wanted to be like him. And so I read, and I studied, and I learned, and I prayed, and I served. Because I wanted to be just like Jesus. I don't know if you can imagine my joy when I found out God told me, someday you will be. You are going to be like him. That's the joy Paul was describing to the Romans when he told them that God was conforming them to the image of his son. We're in week five of our series together, The Abundant Life, living the joy of relationship with God. Jesus said he had come to give us life and to give it abundantly, and ultimately that means that we will one day know the fullness of life that he lives in us and through us, and we will be like him. That's why the Apostle John also wrote in 1 John 3, verse 2, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. We shall be like him. I love reading those words. God is working to produce that life in us, the abundant life of being like Jesus. And that's why Paul tells the Romans here in Romans 8, people who live the abundant life are people who live the joy of a Christ-like life. But the question is, what is the joy of the Christ-like life? How do you experience it? Well, Paul tells them here that it comes by knowing that God is working in everything to produce a Christ-like life, and that God has worked everything to guarantee a Christ-like life. The joy of a Christ-like life is knowing that God is working in all things to produce that Christ-like life. Here's the way he put it in verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. I was reading a piece from Johnny Erickson Tada's book, A Place of Healing. And she wrote something in there I thought was very, very insightful. We've had Johnny here at the church a couple of times. I'll tell you, man, you're around that woman much. She speaks wisdom from, she's learned what she's teaching. She wrote in the book that many times we tend to worry that the cares, the troubles, and the afflictions of life are going to wear us down, dulling our joy diluting our hope, robbing us of the radiance we once experienced as believers. But in fact, she said, it may be the very opposite. It isn't the hurts, the blows, and the bruises that rob us of the freshness of Christ's beauty in our lives. More likely, it's the careless ease, empty pride, earthly preoccupations, and too much prosperity that will put layers of dirty grime like film over our soul. And she goes on to illustrate her point this way. She said, I'll never forget the time I first saw Notre Dame Chapel, the chapel, the cathedral in Paris. Carla and I have seen it. It's a, an amazing structure. There it was, she said, almost a 1,000 years old, standing there so huge, 
and black. I had never seen such a dirty cathedral. After hundreds of years of soot, dust, and smoke, Notre Dame was covered in layers of black grime. It was even difficult to make out the beautiful carvings and details on the exterior. But then the grand old cathedral went through a year-long restoration. Scaffolding was erected, and the entire exterior was sandblasted. She said, I was stunned when I saw a recent photograph of the cathedral. It was beautiful and so very different from the way I remembered it. The ancient stones glowed bright and golden. You could see details on carvings that hadn't been visible in decades. It was like a different cathedral. What a wonder a bit of sandblasting can accomplish. People, do you realize today that in every one of our lives, God is doing the same thing? He's doing the same thing thing through the many stresses, the trials, and heartaches that we experience in life. He is stripping away the things that hide his glory. And he's revealing more and more of the beauty of his son. Paul told the Romans that God was working in everything to conform us to the image or likeness of his son. Well, he said in verse 28, and we know, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. We know. Paul uses a a word to know here, which means to know by experience. So what he's telling these people, you and I, as Romans, as Christians, who have been living this life with God, we now know that God is using all these events for good. A lot of people don't know that yet, but we know it. And we've come to see and understand and know by experience that God is working in all these things we sometimes don't like to accomplish a greater good. In fact, that word good he used is to produce the beneficial effect of a good character, as God knows he alone can do and he knows how to do it. He's working, we know, they said, he's working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that word called here is a little bit different than the word he uses called later on. This is an invitation. An invitation for all of us to join with God in this process of being transformed through the things that happen in our life to become more like Jesus. He's inviting us. He's calling us to this. What is the purpose? Verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. To be conformed, to be morphed, to be changed into something we weren't before, to take on the very likeness of someone else. And that someone else is Jesus. We're taking on his image, his icon, his likeness. And the idea of that word Paul uses is a twofold thing. It's representation and it's manifestation. So in many ways, God is making us to be representatives of Christ in everything. We represent him all the time, his priorities, his interests, his purposes, his thoughts, 
his ways. We represent Jesus in what he wants. We represent him. But we're also the manifestation. We are the very manifestation of his presence. Jesus is at the right hand of God, but he lives in us through his spirit. And now we are his presence in the world. We manifest him every way and everything. He reveals himself through us. He is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Firstborn meaning he has the preeminence as the firstborn son. None will be higher than him. But he's also the prototype is the word, meaning that he is the first of others that may come, sort of like the first fruit idea. That as Jesus comes to live in us, so we will become like him. We will never be God, but we will be like him. God is working all these things in our lives to produce this good effect that we will be changed into the likeness of Jesus so that we will represent him and manifest him everywhere in everything. That's how God is working now in all these things. Pastor Ken Cross, in his insightful and challenging lessons this week in our workbook, quoted Professor John Stoll, who said, true followers do not remain the same once they start following Christ. He is involved in a task of radical reformation in our lives in terms of both character and conduct. Followers become imitators of the one they are following. You know a follower because he acts and reacts like the one who is leading his life. And Pastor Ken wrote, our relationship with Christ inspires lasting joy as he establishes Christ-like natures within us. So, what are the parts of us covering the glory of God that God needs to sandblast off, that are part of our flesh, part of our nature, part of who we are apart from Christ? Well, in the book of Galatians, Paul draws a sharp contrast between what God is blasting off, getting rid of, and what is being replaced in the likeness of Christ. Paul wrote to the Galatian churches in Galatians 5, verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Now, these are the things that cloud the glory of God. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Idolatry, which is when anyone has anything other than God, is first place in their life, even self, which is the primary idol in most lives. Witchcraft, which the Bible defines can be any form of rebellion. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it's bad enough when unbelievers live like that, that image of God created in them is certainly marred. And people who live like that are demonstrating they don't belong to Jesus. When Christians have these attributes in their life, they should take it seriously. Because if these model themselves too much in a life and you claim to be a Christian, there's a good chance you may not really be one. Because these are the very things that God wants to blast off your life because he wants the glory of his son to shine through your life. So here are the Christ-like attributes God is producing in those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He goes on to say in Galatians 5, we call it the fruit of the Spirit of God. Only God through his Spirit can produce this Christ-like character. 
What are, what are these attributes? Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there's no law, Paul said. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So you might ask, how is it that God is sandblasting off the things of the flesh that cloud his glory, and how is it that he's bringing out the Christ-likeness character in our lives so it can be made like him? Well, the sandblasting process sometimes looks like this. Take any of those attributes. Take love, for example. How is God going to bring Christ-like life, love out of me? Well, he's going to put me in situations where my human capacity to love is going to be exhausted. You have anybody in your life ever that you found a little tough to love? An irregular person? People who, does, who has done or does things to you that drive you crazy and you wonder, how in the world am I supposed to love this person? Well, the fact of the matter is, you're going through that in part with that person because God's stripping away the human ability to love because that love isn't enough. And when I brought to the end of my ability to love that other person because of what they're doing, but out of obedience to God, I say, Lord, I know you want me to love them, and I know you love them, and I know you want to love them through me, and so I'm wanting you to love this love through me to this person, God. I'm wanting you to do that. Remember Paul said, if you love him and are called according to his purpose, and if you love him, you will obey him, we learned last week. So I'm willing now, God, to let you love through me, and I want to learn to genuinely love this person. When you come to the end of human love and you see God produce a love like that through you for them, you'll know it isn't you. They'll know it isn't you. And Christ begins to shine in your life. Take joy. What does the world say joy is? They equate joy with happiness. I have good circumstances, that's good. I have bad circumstances, that's bad. But that's not joy. Joy isn't related to circumstance. Joy is a quality of the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, it shines even brighter sometimes when most of the world would say, you have no reason to be joyful. So what does God do? He puts us in situations where a lot of that worldly kind of joy is stripped away. That's why you can sometimes see Christians in the midst of persecution telling about the joy that they have inside that circumstances can't reach. Because God's producing this joy and it's shining out through your life. And when people see that, they think, where is that coming from? It's coming from Jesus. God is producing in me Christ-likeness. Take peace. What does the world say peace is? Peace is the absence of conflict, they tell you. Well, if that's the case, you're never going to have it. Is there anybody in this room or watching us live right now who has no conflict in their life of any kind? No, <laughs> you don't. You might have sparse moments. Conflict is a reality. Jesus said, I give you my peace, not like the world gives. The world says peace is the absence of conflict. Jesus said, my peace is that quiet calm in the midst of the conflict. And when you see that kind of peace when you're going through a trauma, that's Jesus being produced in you. His Christ like this, and others see it too, and so do you. Take all of those attributes, it's the same way. God strips away the stuff that we have and he adds or brings out Christ-likeness. 
When God is refining and sandblasting, it's no fun. But remember, he's not trying to make a better us. He's stripping us away so Jesus can be seen living in us. Pastor Ken quoted this week from Charles Price's book, Alive in Christ. The Christian life is not a technique or a style. It's exclusively the consequence of a relationship that allows God to be God within a person's life. It is the indwelling spirit of Christ himself who makes the Christian life tick. God himself is our strength. He doesn't simply give it to us, nor does he teach us techniques for producing it. But it's he himself. He himself coming out of our lives. Pastor Ken went on to say, it takes both a willing heart and the Holy Spirit working together to produce joy in an effective Christian life. It's all about Christ in us and becoming more like him. You see, this is why the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. God is doing this. In fact, God is using everything that happens in our life to conform us to the image of his Son. And when you realize he's using everything to achieve that good, that purpose, it brings a joy. We don't always like what we have to go through, but it helps to know that God is in it and why he's doing it. People who love Jesus and are called according to his purpose want to be like him. And you have the joy of knowing today that if that's you, someday you're going to be. You're going to be like Jesus. And not only knowing that God is working all things to produce a Christ-like life, but the joy of a Christ-like life is knowing that God has worked all things to guarantee a Christ-like life. Verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. 2010, Giants went to the World Series for the first time in, what, 350 years or whatever it was? It was a long time. <laughs> My Giants fan daughter, Kimmy, loves watching the Giants. So... She called me up one day here at church, and she said, Dad, Giants are in the World Series. I said, wow, Kimmy, that's great. She said, Dad, I know it's a long shot, but it's on my bucket list. I was wondering, any chance we might be able to go to a game? My bucket list thing would be to love to see the Giants play in the World Series. I said, well, let me check it out. Big mistake. I went, <laughs> I went online to StubHub or FlubFlib or whatever that thing is, and I went on there, and I'm checking out tickets, and I'm thinking, whoa. So I called Kimmy back, and I said, Kimmy, you know what? God's a great provider, and we could probably swing it, but this is really, ooh, this is a little out of reach. So I'm sorry. You're going to have to wait till you're independently wealthy or something, but I, <laughs> we, we can't do it. She said, I understand. 
The very next day, I'm up in the office. I walk by my wife, Carla, who's sitting at the reception station. She hangs up the phone. She said, Larry, I just got off the phone with a family in our church, and uh, they're wondering if you or anybody else you know could use two tickets to the opening game of the World Series. I said, are you serious? She goes, yeah, I, I, I just got off the phone. They want to know if you or anybody you know could use them. I, I was flabbergasted that people could be this generous. And so I called up Kimmy and I said, Kimmy, how'd you like to go to the opening game of the World Series? Are you serious, Dad? No, I said, would you like to go? Well, how are you going to do that? You just told me we couldn't do it yesterday. I said, well, man, God's worked a miracle here. She said, are we really going to do this? I said, Kimmy, I'm, I've got two tickets in my hand. It's a done deal. And so we went. By God's grace and the generosity of a family in our church, and you know what? Between the time of getting those tickets and the time we actually went, I'd have days where I'd think, did that really happen? And I'd go home and pull those tickets out. Every time I saw them, I thought, this is real. This is a done deal. We're doing this. You know, in many ways, that's the way Paul is describing the hope of a Christ-like life for those who love God and have called according to his purpose. It's a done deal. It's real. Paul told them not only is God working toward this and everything that happens, but he has worked to guarantee that you will be just like Jesus. That's why he said in verse 29, notice the tense of these verbs. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Past tense, it's a done deal. God foreknew. He knew beforehand God ordained that you personally implied by the word would one day be like Jesus. He knew it. He foreordained it. And he also predestined it. He predetermined what the outcome of all the events of our life would be. He was going to use those to make you like Jesus. Done deal. Now, I know people get a lot of heartburn over predestination election. They don't like that stuff. I had a guy tell me one time, I don't like, I don't believe in predestination election. I said, well, then you better, you better chuck your Bible because I'm telling you, it says that God has predetermined certain things in our life. And the fact that you're going to be like Jesus, he knew before the world was made. He chose you before the world was even created. Now, I can't explain all that to you. I can just tell you, God said that's what he did. He foreknew and he predestined us to this, it was his plan and purpose for you before the world was even made. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us 
in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. When did he choose? Before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. He works out what? Everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. God chose you before the foundation of the world. He already predestined this to happen for you. And you were included in it when you received Christ. Amazing. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, if you've been a Christian a while, hopefully there's some evidence that the Holy Spirit of God is working in your life, chief of which is that you believe in Jesus. You've come to follow him, and some of that Christ-like fruit's being lived out in your life. When you see the evidence of the Holy Spirit working in you, and you know that it's him and not you, there's a reason for that. Because you and I can have doubts sometimes. Did God really choose me? Am I really his? Am I really going to be like Jesus forever? Is all of this really guaranteed? It's like, am I really going to the World Series? I'd run to the drawer, pull out the tickets. I'm really going. It's a done deal. When I have those doubts, all I have to remember is the Holy Spirit of God saved me. The Holy Spirit of God is living in me. The Holy Spirit of God is working in me. And I have assurance because he's the deposit, guaranteeing that what God promised to me is coming. That's our hope. That's why we believe. We were chosen. We were predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That's why Paul could write with such certainty the way he did that it's a done deal. Past tense, verse 30. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Done deal. That's why the Apostle John could write with that same kind of certainty. We don't know everything God's going to do to achieve this, he said, but when he's done, we're going to be like Jesus, guaranteed. 1 John 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us? That we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. People, we have this hope. And this hope is what purifies us. It helps us to live differently because we want to be more like him. You see, we have this hope because you and I are living in the period that's called the already, but the not yet. That's where we're living. All of this is already accomplished, but we haven't received it in all of its fullness yet. 
I had World Series tickets, but I hadn't yet attended the game. You see, that's why there's so much groaning going on, Paul said. Creation is groaning. We are groaning. The Holy Spirit of God is groaning. Remember in verse 22, Romans 8, verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Why is creation groaning? Because this whole thing isn't completed yet. The world isn't functioning the way it, it should. This isn't heaven yet on earth. I've watched my wife go through the birth of three children. There is groaning involved. But it's a different kind. There's a joy in it because you know what? At the end of the groaning comes what? The blessing of the child. Why is the world groaning now? Because creation is groaning because it hasn't yet reached the fullness, but it knows it's coming. That's why we groan. Romans 8, verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for it, for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. People, when I was sitting at the World Series game, I wasn't hoping I would go. I was there. When I'm in heaven someday, I'm not going to be hoping I'm going to be like Jesus. I will be like him. But I'm not yet, and neither are you. But I know it's coming. So I groan inwardly at times because I know that I'm not yet all I'm intended to be. But I'm in process. There's a groaning going on. But that groaning is filled with hope. I haven't seen it all yet. I'm living in the already, but the not yet. I have a hope. And so it helps me to wait for it patiently. Not only creation and not only us, but even the Spirit of God is groaning. Verse 26, in the same way the Spirit, of, Spirit helps us in our weakness, we don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. People, the Spirit of God is groaning to see God's will accomplished in us. God knows it's coming. And we're in the midst of all of these things that God is working to produce that, but we don't see it all. We don't even know how to pray half the time about all these things. But the Spirit of God does. So the Spirit of God, with groanings too deep for words, begins to intercede for us that the will of God will be done in our lives, that in all those things we're going through, it'll achieve God's good purpose. People have tried to use this to teach the gift of tongues. Gift of tongues is a real gift. It's a spiritual gift God can use any time he wants. I don't have it. Most of you don't have it. Few people have it today. This is not talking about tongues. This is way deeper than this. This is the Spirit of God groaning in anticipation of the completion of what you and I are going to be that he sees and knows is coming. Paul goes on in the light of this blessed hope to ask three questions that the answers to which give us even more hope. Romans 8, verse 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, no one. Question 2, verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Answer, no one. Question 3, Romans 35, verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? 
Answer, no one, no thing, not now, not ever. Pastor Ken wrote this week in the workbook, when we are convinced that our salvation is utterly secure, held in God's power, come what may, we are conquerors. We ultimately win, and our little skirmishes are not that dreadful. He is the author and finisher of our faith. His perfect love for us has a wonderful plan to build his character and attitude in us through suffering and hardship. As we stand in the character of faith, trusting God in the midst of difficulties, he is magnified, and we have hope. That's why Paul told the Romans in Romans 8, verse 17, now if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider our present sufferings aren't worth compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul told the Corinthians, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. You see, that's why Paul told them in Romans 8, verse 24, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. The fact that we have hope is the sign that we're in the already, but it hasn't come yet. But it will, because God has done everything to guarantee it. That's why our memory verse this week from Colossians 1, verse 28 and 29, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. People, have you loved Jesus today and you're called according to his purpose and you want to be like him someday? God said you have hope. Someday you will be. But the sad thing is that so many times as Christians, we're not willing to accept what God is offering. We shoot so far less. We accept trinkets when God is, is offering abundant life. I don't know if you've ever read anything by Sky Jathani. He's an author, pastor, had numerous roles at Christianity Today. He wrote a book called The Divine Commodity. And he was telling in that book about a time he and his dad visited India and as they were walking down the street, this little boy came up. He was naked except for a pair of shorts. His legs were twisted, obviously had some kind of a deformity, and so bad that he could only scurry along on his knees, which were badly callous. And he came up to his dad and he said, one rupee, sir, one rupee? He said, my dad looked down at the boy and he said, how about I give you five rupees? And he started to laugh, and the boy got disgusted. He thought Sky and his dad were making fun of him. And so he turned away from him, disgusted, and went off yelling curses under his breath. But Sky Jazani said, my dad reached into his pocket and the boy heard the sound of coins, so he stopped and he turned around and looked over his shoulder. And he saw my dad holding a five rupee coin, a fortune to this little boy. Nobody gives a kid like this five rupees. He said, my dad pressed that coin into that little boy's hand, and he went silent. He just stared at it in disbelief. 
He said, without a word, my dad and I walked on. And then we heard the boy behind us yelling. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And when we turned around, here comes this little boy across the street hobbling on his callous knees as fast as he could go. Not to ask for anything, but he said simply to kiss the feet of my father. And Sky Jathani said, you know what? I think God sees us a lot like that sometimes. So desperately in need, wanting the best of what life can give, and here's God offering abundant life, but we're turning away because we don't believe anybody could give what God's promising. And then along comes Jesus, and he's holding out eternal life. He's holding out the abundant life. And people who love God and are called according to his purpose, they will open up their hands and say, God, look, if this is what you're offering, I want it. And whatever you have to take me through to get there, it's worth it. I want a Christ-like life. I want to be like him. So God said, I'm going to take you through some things, and I'm going to use everything that happens to produce that. Don't grumble. Don't complain when it happens. Come alongside. Get people to pray with you. Encourage them. This is not easy. But you'll have hope in the midst of it. And your hope is this. I've already done all that's needed to guarantee that one day you're going to be like Jesus. That's our hope. That's the joy of a Christ-like life. And Paul told the Romans, and God tells us, if you love God and you're called according to his purpose, and you want to be like Jesus, take heart, have hope. Someday you will be. God, thank you for this. Thank you for this. It's amazing what you've done. It's amazing what you're doing. Just this week, God, I've apologized for the times I've grumbled and complained because of some of the stuff I didn't like. Sandblasting isn't fun. But it helps me to know now why you're doing it. And what you're producing is beyond what I could imagine. But God, we don't want to minimize or be a bunch of Pollyannas either. It hurts sometimes to go through the stuff we have to walk through. So... We need you and we need each other. So God, help us to look to you, to know you, to have you in our lives, to come alongside each other and encourage each other all the more as we see the day drawing near. And thank you that in the midst of whatever we face, we have a hope. We are going to be like Jesus. And we thank you in your precious name. Amen.